Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today you are in for a treat because we are tackling the subject of advanced practice providers in oncology care. It is very important to understand that oncology care, especially in 2022 and beyond, requires this multidisciplinary approach, not just from multiple several specialties within within from the physician side, but also from advanced practice providers. So I wanted to dedicate this episode to all advanced practice providers out there, physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Who are they? What is the training that they received? What do they do day in and day out? And what does the future look like for advanced practice providers? Where do they get their education? Where do they get their training? And how do they actually keep up with the field? And, you know, we should stop calling advanced practice providers as mid-levels because they are not. In fact, I would say that calling them mid-levels is completely inappropriate and that should stop. Um, so really, uh, at the same time, I'm going to challenge my guests and ask them, what do they feel about calling physicians providers? So you need to tune in and stay listening to this podcast so you actually know what the answer is. So I'm joined by Sarah Wyman and Katie Simon from Emory University and the Winship Cancer Institute today on today's podcast. Uh, I appreciate your support. I also would like to ask you to subscribe, follow, and rate the podcast, write a brief review, and let me know how I'm doing. Always provide feedback. I'm more than happy to pivot and to change things based on your feedback. Don't forget to watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Without further ado, advanced practice providers on Healthcare Unfiltered. Let's get started by some form of introduction. Both of my guests are from Emory University Winship Cancer Institute. So we'll start with you, Sarah, a little bit about you, who you are, where you work, and what got you interested in becoming a nurse practitioner? Sure. Thanks for having us, first of all. Um, so I'm Sarah. I'm a co-lead alongside Katie um, of the Malignant Heme Services at Emory Main Campus. And I have a nursing background. Um, I wanted to be a nurse from since I was little. I was a candy striper in the high, at a, when I was in high school at the local hospital. And then I ended up going and getting a finance degree at UGA. I got sidetracked somewhere along the way. But after I got done with the finance degree, I quickly realized that I missed take, being around people instead of computers and spreadsheets. And I uh, went back and got my nursing degree and I was a critical care nurse for about five years and then um, loved nursing, bedside nursing and being able to be with the patient and their family members, um, but wanted to take it a step further. And I went back and got my acute care degree um, at University of Alabama in Birmingham. Uh, and then I worked in palm critical care for about five years as a nurse practitioner. And now I'm in oncology um, for the last going on six years at Emory. And I'm what, very, what, what yeah. an amazing, amazing uh, journey. I really, I, I'm always fascinated by someone who has a degree already and completely switch, right? I mean, you don't think you go through the finance route and you're thinking you're going to be in the corporate world and doing other things and you completely pivoted. So I could tell that this is something you're passionate about to be able to do that because it's never easy. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. Um, 
Katie, what, uh, what about you and what got you into PA school and, and how did you end up in oncology? Yeah, um, I'm Katie. I'm Sarah's other half. Um, I have this distinct memory of being in college and someone asking me, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I was like, I see myself in a hospital in scrubs. Uh, <laughs> and here I am. Um, so I worked after college, I got my, uh, bachelor's in psychology. And after college, I worked in a, um, infectious disease clinic as a phlebotomist medical assistant for a couple of years before going to PA school. I went to PA school at Emory and one of my favorite, uh, didactic sessions in PA school was the HEMOC section. And so I did an elective rotation with the group I'm at now, and I've been with them ever since. And I love it. I don't see myself anywhere else. And just for the record, Sarah still uses her finance uh, background. She makes uh, spreadsheets all the time. All the time. <laughs> you know, you can take finance out of the girl. You can't take the girl or you can take the girl out of the finance. You can't take finance of the girl. But, yeah. um, but you know, uh, we have to be careful. She's a psychology degree, so she can she can tell what we're thinking. <laughs> we're be careful. So so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, I want to try to understand uh, for, for listeners you you're Katie, you're a physician assistant, but Sarah is a nurse practitioner. Help me and help them understand how you can have two completely separate degrees, separate schools, different schools, different degrees, but the scope of work is completely the same. You can understand, you can appreciate that people may be a little bit confused about this. Uh, and let's say if I wanna if I wanna do the job that you're doing, why would I decide to do nursing? then nurse practitioner versus PA, right? If I'm going to do the same job, how do I decide? Like, why do I choose one path versus another? Katie, I start with you, and then I will want to hear from Sarah as well. Really, I think the difference between them is really kind of the the model of which they're based on. So from my understanding, that nurse practitioner school is based on a nursing model, and the PA model is the is similar to a med school model. Um, so for me, I, I wasn't a nurse. So I wasn't already in that field. So this was the quickest way to get to do what I wanted to do. In my brain, it kind of is similar to DOs and MDs can do the same thing. And that's kind of how I think of our roles as NPs and PAs can do the same thing. So for you it was four years of college. Mm -hmm. And then how many years is PA school? I did four years of college. PA school is around 29 months or two and a half years. Um, okay. Most PA schools require that you have a set, set amount of hours of direct patient care experience, um, whether it's 2,000 or 4,000 hours, it varies based on the school. So that's why I worked in an infectious disease clinic um, in the gap there. And then you finish PA school, you, you're a general physician assistant, you could do any type of uh, clinic or you need to specialize? What's the trend? Um, I think, you know, as time goes on, the trend is getting more towards specialization. There's lots of APP fellowships that exist now that didn't exist when I was coming out of PA school. Um, but one of the neat things about being a PA is let's say, you know, next year I decide, hey, I want to go work in an outpatient clinic. I could do that with my same degree, no different schooling. Got it. Okay, let's go the path, the nursing path. So what's, what Katie did is four years of college, almost three years of PA school, direct hours, and then when, is the nursing path longer? Um, no, so, you know, a nursing degree, a BSN in nursing is four years. And then to go back to get, um, there's various nurse practitioner degrees. And I think that's sort of the difference, the nuance is that, 
Um, so I can't see pediatrics, for instance. I got an acute care nurse practitioner that focuses um, very much on inpatient medicine and adults. Um, if there is another degree called a family nurse practitioner that sees um, pediatrics, OBGYN, primary care, and it's more um, based in the outpatient setting. So I think it's just within those two tracks, and these are really become specified over the last few years um, where they've just incorporated out, um, acute care to be only in the inpatient setting and family in the outpatient setting. But I think where you start just kind of depends on, uh, you know, me having that nursing background. I had all the clinical hours that Katie had to go get in infectious disease. I had it at the bedside of patient care. So I think a lot of nurses at the bedside that want a higher degree then roll into nurse practitioner. All right. Now I understand. But, but, um, you know, this is pretty typical. In other words, it's not just specific to Emory or the institution. I'm trying to, anywhere you go to, if you're a PA or a nurse practitioner, you're labeled under the advanced practice providers and you do the same job. Are, where are pharmacists fitting in this? They are completely separate. They're not labeled APPs, obviously, because they do something completely different. They're obviously integrated in oncology care, but complete, the scope is completely different, correct, for listeners? Correct. And we also, I think specifically to oncology care, we have clinical um, pharmacy specialists, too, that work with our patient population that are even further specialized than just regular PharmDs. Got it. Okay. Got it. So let's go through your, um, I mean, the goal of this is just to explain the scope of the work and how you're involved in patient care and try to imagine how the future looks like. So Sarah, twenty years ago, do you do you know how? I mean, how the were there nurse practitioners twenty years ago, twenty five years ago? Is this like you know when was there a movement that started that brought nurse practitioners and physician assistants to the bedside? Um, I, I'm just looking back at when I when I did residency. I don't think there were many. There were, but there wasn't as many as now. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great point. I, I'm thinking back 20 years ago, um, and when I was a nurse at the bedside, there was definitely not as many um, advanced practice providers. And even back then, I think they were we we called everybody mid levels, um, which is a no no now. Um, but there were fewer of them, and I think you know the advancement over the last probably 10 years of having bringing APPs into practice and, and you know expanding access to care and um, doing a lot of the things that were previously set aside for the physicians only um, has been um, incredibly helpful in, in terms of patient care, providing you know quality patient care. And there's, uh, I, I, I love that you mentioned the mid-levels thing because one of my pet peeves, uh, I think it is, I, I don't think it's an appropriate terminology, but at the same time, I'm going to challenge you with um, the term that physicians usually are, and they don't like to label everybody as provider, but we'll go over that in a little bit. <clears throat> Although I actually don't care, but I know some of my colleagues do. Katie, how about the trends for PA schools? Do you have any... Uh, I don't know if the taught this in PA schools, like, you know, are admissions higher? Are there more people? Is it more competitive? Like, tell me about the trend and what's been going on in PA schools for the past uh, decade or so. Um, well, if I can, I'll start a little bit earlier than that. The PA profession was actually born out of the military. Um, so they would have these army medics. Um, and that is where the PA profession came from. Um, I think they noticed that PAs can provide that acute quality care to patients and fill a gap in healthcare. 
And that's where the profession came from. And then I think over the past decade, you know, as people have become more familiar with the profession and healthcare needs have increased, admissions to PA school have also increased. Um, I graduated from PA school in 2015. And when I applied, I think there was something like a thousand applicants. And I'm now on the interview panel for the PA school and they get, you know, thousands and thousands of applicants a year. Wow. How many, do, I, I could Google this, but why Google when I have you? Uh, <laughs> but do we know how many like PA schools are out there in, in the, like every state has a PA school. Uh, you don't need to travel out of state if you have to stay in state, no? Every state has a PA school and some have multiple, you know, in Georgia, there are several. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. So Sarah, what do you do day in and day out as, as a nurse practitioner on the inpatient side? And obviously you have colleagues on the outpatient. I'd like you to tell me what they do. We don't have somebody on the outpatient side that is with us today. Take me through a day in the life of Sarah. Sure. Um, so we typically um, have around eight to 10, sometimes more, um, patients that are assigned to us as an APP. Um, and so our day-to-day is we go in, we look up the patients, see what happened overnight, touch base with the nurses. We go and see every patient on our list, um, make any initial adjustments um, to their medications, like if they're having more nausea and we need to increase the nausea meds, or if something acute happened overnight and we need to um, make any changes. So we do that. And then we do what's called uh, multidisciplinary rounds. Um, is a, an initiative that we are have recently started and are still working on getting down, but um, from nine to about 12. And that's so the APP, the physician, the clinical farm specialist, um, nursing, um, and where we go and see every patient on a, a set list. Um, and then after that's done, the afternoon's generally filled with, we'll, we'll do notes, call consults, do procedures. Um, and then inevitably there's upwards of, you know, eight to 10 sick admissions or scheduled admissions for chemo or patients transferring from other facilities that are newly diagnosed and need workups. Is there a limit to how many patients are under uh, are in your care for uh, in the inpatient setting? No, we do what we have to do to get the patients taken care of. Um, I will say that we the goal is to have eight to 10, um, just because we, I, we are taking care of the whole patient. It's not just, I mean, it, it's basically, we're a, a primary service. We do all the internal medicine. Um, and a lot of times, so, so 10 patients again is our goal. Um, and we are very fortunate that we do have fellows that rotate on the service. And even sometimes the attendings, if the lists are getting too big, will offer to take a handful of patients themselves. Um, Got so. It. So Katie, at night, what happens? I mean, you you obviously leave at some point, depending on your workload. Uh, do you have a? Are there different PAs or NPs that come at night that stay overnight and sleep in the hospital? Yes, there. Well, I hope they're not sleeping, but we do have a dedicated team of night shift APPs that cover all four of our inpatient oncology services. Um, so they cover BMT, our lymphoma myeloma service, the leukemia service, and the medical oncology service. They're there from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So what do they do? They're taking care of acute things, but aren't there residents and fellows also at night at the hospital? What? So we, yeah, our service is entirely APP managed. Um, during the day, for the most part, we occasionally have fellows come through, I would say maybe five months, sometimes a little bit more on the leukemia service, but night shift is entirely APP run. Um, 
But the medical oncology, there are no residents or fellows on call? Nope. They take call. So they, they, the, the outpatient phone calls go to the physicians. Um, so they take outpatient phone calls, but in terms of being on call and in the hospital, it's all APPs. Yeah. So they are handling, putting out all the fires, doing any admissions that come in overnight. Um, and then just kind of, you know, the routine things that come up overnight, someone spiked a fever, we have to do a sepsis workup, you know, everything like so that. Let me get this straight because, um, uh, that wasn't the case when I was in training. So, so the fellows and the residents, they don't take overnight oncology calls in the hospital how about during the day are there i'm not talking the bmt i agree as the bmt may be different i'm talking the other ones like lymphoma myeloma you said and medical oncology these are less acute of services no they don't no okay all right <laughs> that's interesting so uh how about the weekends do you take call on the weekends uh, katie um our service is staffed 24 hours a day seven days a week by apps so sarah and i worked both Saturday and Sunday this weekend. So. Okay. Uh, and then next weekend, hopefully somebody else will take over so you take a weekend off. Yeah. We don't work uh, every weekend, but uh, yeah. And we sometimes, uh, fellows can are allowed to moonlight on the weekend. So sometimes they'll pick up an extra shift. And if we need help, they'll come in and staff it with us. Got it. How about outpatient calls, uh, Sarah? Are you involved in outpatient calls? Uh, like, in other words, you know, no. So, are you talking about like the phone calls that come in after hours, or right? right. Yeah, no. The um, we're very lucky that the physicians um, field all of those. Okay, and the fellows and residents take calls or no? Mm -mm. No. I'm gonna go back and do my residency. Then. What is this? That <laughs> was. <laughs> I've been, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I think listeners will know I'm usually very rarely at loss of words, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm a little bit at loss of words. I mean, like, they should have some training, shouldn't they? Um, okay, got it. Um, so now you, you obviously do the same that Sarah outlined. So now, Katie, take me through the discharge process of a patient and and how is the sign out to the outpatient team? Take me through that uh, process uh, that goes on. Our discharge planning starts on day of admission. So we start the process up front because there are very complicated patients that require a lot of specialty meds and close follow-up. We're lucky enough to have fabulous discharge coordinators on our team. We have three of them and they help us with arranging follow-up, outpatient imaging, getting labs scheduled, sending messages to the clinic to make sure that the outpatient team is on you know, the same page as us. Um, we've standardized our discharge summaries so that we include a specific section that says outpatient team to follow up on to try and make, make it you know, very clear they had a long hospitalization, but hey, here are the three things that we really don't want to fall through the cracks. And then sometimes we send our patients home to a local physician. And so we created um, a tip sheet essentially that was that is like on day 30, you need to start back drum. Here are the labs we recommend, problem solving for nausea, vomiting, uncontrolled diarrhea, and things like that. And we make sure they get our discharge summary as well. It's all about, you know, transparency and communication. Yeah, I mean, it's really no easy task, to be honest. I mean, your patients are pretty sick and, and you know, you've got a list of these things. But, but you know, Sarah, if I, if I may, I, I presume 
that some of the patients that get discharged, they have never been seen in the outpatient clinic because you could get a patient coming through the emergency room, they have acute leukemia, and they just they end up being all in there. So they haven't been seen. And when this patient is discharged, they may still call the, call the floor and they call the nurse and they ask for you. They've been with you for like four weeks. And how, how do you handle that? I mean, because now they're out and this, you know, they're in that limbo phase. Sure. Um, we, I would say that Emory does a really great job of sort of that transition of care. Any newly diagnosed patient, whether it be myeloma or lymphoma or um, leukemia, for instance, um, they every patient gets a phone number that directs them towards the when they leave. Um, and it's a 24 seven where they get one of the physicians that are on call from our services and um, they can direct them towards we just opened a intermediate care unit. Um, so we have the infusion center that can take care of patients. And then we have a Rollins intermediate care unit that just very recently opened. And it's for our oncology patients to go for things like if they need blood cultures done or um, maybe to be worked up for a neutropenic fever, but don't necessarily require hospitalization. Um, so, and that's all sort of directed by that one phone number that the physician physicians take call for. And that's available 24-7, the intermediate uh, unit? Uh, not, it's going to be. It's Right now it's open uh, six days a week, I think 7 to 10 p.m. And then once they um, get staffing for the full 24 hours, it will be 24-7. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about some of the, just a little bit of a few, few other things that are really important for folks who are listening to understand the scope of what we do. So let's talk about autonomy in decision-making and test ordering. Katie, what are, give me an example of things that you don't need to call the doctor for and things that you need to call the doctor for. I would say, you know, anything that falls under the day-to-day -day management of patients and a lot of symptom management we do. So medication changes like titrating antiemetics or um, patient has a neutropenic fever adding on antibiotics. They have an acute abdomen, you order a CT scan. You know, the day-to-day -day management of a very sick patient, we do. And then things like we do bone marrow biopsies and lumbar punctures. We take care of the ordering for that as well. Uh, if we're unsure of something, the physicians are amazing and we can run it past them and they help out with the specific, you know, if there's fish or molecular testing that they want to make sure they get it done, we can run it past them. Things that we do have to call the physician for, you know, I would never change chemo without running it past my attending. Um, and then we do a lot of CAR T cell therapy. So if we need to give tocilizumab or dexamethasone to a patient, I would be sure and loop the attending in as well. But we're how, very uh, how about dose reductions? Any modification to a chemo, yeah, I would loop the attending in. Uh, growth factor support. Growth factor support is um, in our chemo order sets, so it's kind of autopiloted. Got it. That, that's very important in terms of uh, all of that. So, so now, how do you keep up with everything happening, uh, Sarah, with uh, <clears throat> the field of... Oncology and heme malignancies. I mean, you know, you, you know, you take care of a lot of these patients with myeloma and 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 leukemia and, and CAR T and everything. I mean, this is such a fast pace uh, field. And so, if you go to conferences, in state, in the hospital, outside, tell me through, take me through how you keep up with everything. It's hard. I mean, it is, but this is truly one of the things I love about doing oncology care um, and taking care of this patient population. There's so much in terms of research and, you know, I, we're learning 
daily um, about new treatment options and things like that. But in terms of how we sort of try to keep up as a team, we um, one of our um, APPs started a monthly journal club that looks at recent articles that came out um, from ASCO or, you know, basically any article, uh, scientific journal article, we'll talk about as a group every month. So we're doing journal clubs. We go to M&M conferences that are led by the attendings and, and you know, as part of the fellowship um, training we do we do go to conferences um both app um, specific conferences katie and i are going to jadpro here at the end of october and then also some of the larger um like asco and ash uh, tell me tell me about that the october one what is what is the um what's the name of the conference it's called jadpro and it's um focused primarily on app's and oncology care so it's very specific to what we do um but it's in colorado for uh I think the last week of October. Okay. So, and that's, uh, that's like the annual APP kind of conference, like similar to the ASH uh, that we. Yes. Yes. Okay. And you, you, you could go to ASH or ASCO if you want to, but I, I, I have a feeling that you probably stay put because you're the physicians are going to that. That's I'm just trying to think. <laughs> I will say that that has been, we're working towards sort of, at least sending one of our APPs um, because, you know, there's a whole group of us, so we could certainly spare one, but um, yes, you're, you're correct. I think a, a large portion of our physicians go to those larger conferences. And so we are usually there taking care of the patients, but um, that's one of the sort of initiatives that Katie and I are working on is getting sponsorship to go to some of the larger conferences um, to have access to all the information and, you know, research that's going on. I have to say, if you have to choose and lobby for something, maybe don't lobby for the big ones. Lobby for the ones to have like the updates, because uh, I mean the really the big conference is like a zoo. I mean, I'm just telling you, like everyone's there. It's very overwhelming. But sometimes they do like a day and a half of really concise ash updates or some something like that. These are the ones that are really, I believe, you get more ROI. Okay, great. So, so. Um, you know, one of the most contentious things that happens with uh, advanced practice provider, I'm not going to say most contentious, but it does happen. And you both are a little bit new to Twitter, so you will see a lot of uh, back and forth and fights on Twitter. But uh, physicians sometimes get a little bit upset when they are called providers. And they say, well, we are doctors, we're not providers. Uh, but in disclaimer, I actually don't care. I even, I even taped a video about this, I don't care, and I was attacked by my colleagues. <laughs> but, 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 you know, there's a sense that, you know, sometimes the advanced practice providers are doing more than they are supposed to. And if we really label the doctors and the APPs under the same umbrella as providers, then the higher-ups in administration, they will easily replace provider by another. And they will say, well, you are all providers, so we don't need this doctor. We'll get the APPs instead. And we all know doctors get paid more than APPs. So from an administrative perspective, they are saving cost and money. I want to give you the rationale behind the, you know, the, um, the, the, the fight, I guess, over the, the labeling. So as advanced practice providers, my two questions, A, can you understand why some physicians are upset by that label? B, do you really think it's an issue and what are your thoughts about it? So we'll start by Sarah and we'll go to Katie on that. 
I guess, you know, to each their own. However, you know, I, I think it's semantics, honestly, the the difference in being called provider versus, um, you know, physician versus APP. That being said, you know, physicians go to school for a lot longer than us and have so many, I think the skill set is different for sure. And, but I think there's a place for both APPs and physicians and we can work collaboratively to, for, for patient care, honestly. Um, so, and I'm, I would say that we are sheltered, um, at Emory, we, there's not that mentality, or at least I have not run across, come across it. Um, it's very, I think our physician group and our physician leads are very APP friendly. Um, it's very collaborative. Well, I mean, I mean, Cigar Lonia wants me to call him sir. Are you kidding me? I mean, you know, I mean... <laughs> so, uh, K- Kitty, I mean, do you understand the, the reason behind this, like, you know, a um, little bit of a uneasiness? Because they say, if you call us all providers, then the CEO of Hospital X, they say, you know what, I'm just going to replace these two doctors by two PAs, and I'm going to save a lot of money, and they're going to, they're all providers. Yeah. I mean, I think intellectually, I understand what you're saying, but, but again, we're so sheltered. I, I just don't actually see it happening at Emory. You know, I feel like doctors are serve one purpose and the APPs kind of fill in the gaps and serve an entirely different purpose. There are things that doctors do that I wouldn't do. I know it's outside the scope of my practice, but I also think that there's a lot of doctors on our team who are like, I, I can't do what you're doing. So, and I think that goes for every member on the, you know, the medical team, nurses, discharge coordinators, pharmacists. So I don't, I just haven't run into it. So one of the things that Sarah mentioned earlier is that, or maybe Kate, you mentioned that you do all of the procedures, which are the, at least in the world of oncology, it's bone marrow biopsies, uh, intrathecal chemotherapy, lumbar punctures. And I guess maybe sometimes uh, you could do, um, you know, thoracentesis and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I did a few of those back in the day. If you are doing all of these, how are the residents and fellows being trained on doing these procedures where they have to do that when they leave the hospital? Katie? Great question. Um, we're usually the ones that are teaching our residents and fellows. Um, and even when they're on our services, we're really the ones that are doing them. They're not. I, I don't know if it's different maybe at Grady or other places where the physicians are, are teaching the fellows how to do it and the fellows are running the services, um, but it really falls under the APP scope of practice. That being said, we do have a um, procedure skills lab or we did pre-COVID where we would have cadavers um, and the fellows would come to that as well. So, Sarah, you can understand why this is an issue, right? I mean, it's... Um... I think fellows have to learn this uh, to graduate, but um, like I can see if they're learning from you, but are, are they eventually doing something? Like, do they do any of these procedures? Yeah, and I think like Katie said, and, and this might just be us not working at Grady and knowing Grady. I mean, the I think Grady and at the VA, I believe, maybe I might be speaking out of turn, but I, they do do the bulk of the work and the procedures, and it's very much um, fellow-driven, um, just at Emory main campus specifically with all these specialized services, it's always truly just been APP run. Okay. Got it. So let's talk about a couple of things. Also, I'm sure my listeners are, are, are uh, thinking about in terms and some of this scope of practice and what, what you do. Are you, uh, Sarah, um, do you initiate end of life discussions? Do you, 
participate in them or you run them? Are you the one sitting and having this conversation with the family? Unfortunately, these are this is the worst part of the job. So how are you involved in that unfortunate part of the job? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely part of our job. It 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 is unfortunately, I would say, a good portion of our job, um, depending on sort of what service we're working on. But the um, APPs very much do and can initiate those types of conversations, usually at the behest of either a family member or as Katie had mentioned, like we're there for 12 hours. And so we're really at the bedside um, along with the nurse um, a lot, just for a lot more time out of the day than the physicians are. Um, but we do have, you know, a fantastic palliative care team too. So they usually are involved at some point or other. And then um, if it's treatment related decisions or a conversation where um, the patient's just not a candidate for additional therapy, um, based on comorbidities and whatnot, um, then the physician usually does step in too and, and say, weigh in and say, this is, this is what I think. Katie, are you involved in having the conversation about code status? Oh, yes. Yeah. We, um, I mean, on every admission, we address code status um, just as part of, you know, doing a thorough H&P. Um, I was on a lymphoma myeloma service actually over the weekend and unfortunately had a very sick list of patients and two of them ended up going to hospice and, you know, we were going live with Epic at the time. So it was really me who was there doing the code discussion and making those changes and initiating the transfer to hospice. We're lucky enough to have a collaborative MD team that there's a lot of collegiality wherein kind of sharing the workload where, you know, I may speak to a family member and they may speak to a different family member, kind of sharing the process, sharing the load and taking care of the whole patient and their family. Are you involved in teaching other staff in the hospital? You mentioned teaching the fellows and residents some of the procedures. What other teaching do you do, you do including to the nursing staff, Katie? I, you know, I think we teach every day. Um, if a nurse comes in and is like, hey, I don't understand this decision, teaching in the moment. And then we also do, there's all these APP um, education sessions um, you know, every year they put on a procedure skills lab where I go and teach anybody who wants to come how to do a lumbar puncture, for example. But I think there's education and teaching that's done, you know, every moment of every day. But do you have anything structured, Sarah, like, you know, weekly lectures, anything for the staff or just ad hoc? It's mostly ad hoc. I mean, I think eventually we'd love to see something structured. It's just, it's really hard on an inpatient setting, on a busy service to have, say, every, you know, Wednesday at three o'clock, we're going to have you know, an hour long discussion. Um, Cause obviously when we're there, patient care comes first, but not to say, that's not to say that we don't need, you know, the other things, the other portions of that, which are education and teaching. And the physicians are really good about doing it on rounds a lot of times too, if a certain situation came up and then nurses are present for that as well as the pharmacist. So you get a good group right there. Um, and it's very applicable to what's going on with a certain patient. Mary, I think I have a good idea in terms of what you do, um, how you spend your day, where you get the information from, and and all of this. So, Katie, what's the worst part of your job? You know, I my friends are, who aren't in medicine kind of look at me and they're like, hey, you get to cure cancer every day. And I think that's a very optimistic way to look at it. Um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of the time, 
when patients are in the hospital on our service, they're at their sickest, um, their disease is progressing. Um, and we see a lot of death and dying and I, that's difficult, you know, emotionally that's hard to see. I think that's the most difficult part of our job. Sarah, if we take that aside, because I agree, it's probably the most difficult thing from the, uh, I don't know, logistical, administrative, anything else, what's the part of the job that you really would like to um, improve on? I would say, and I think this has been not unique to oncology, but I think burnout in the last few years with COVID and, you know, just healthcare in general um, and being able to step away from it when we're not at work has been hard for me personally. Um, are you part, able, are you able to shut down? Not as well as I would like to. Um, I think a lot of it came along with a leadership role. So if, if Katie either, we try to separate our schedules. So either Katie's at work or I'm at work so we can have time away. Um, but nine times out of 10, somebody's texting about can't find the overtime sheet or, you know, how do we do this in the computer, um, which we don't mind and we love and we have a very open, um, we want our team to be able to do that and ask ask us those things, but it is also hard to take time away. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, uh, Katie, you both of you actually mentioned about COVID. Um, and, um, you know, obviously we are emerging out of the pandemic and of course, I may get canceled right now because I said we're emerging out of the pandemic, but we are. <laughs> but we are. Uh, but uh, but what? How? I mean, how did your role change during the pandemic um, uh, from before the pandemic, Katie? Significantly, um, we actually had to create kind of a jeopardy system. So we transitioned our entire inpatient service from working three twelves a week to working four twelves with you had a buddy essentially. So one person was in the hospital and the other person was at home charting and calling consults. Um, and it essentially changed that person into the, the safe zone. So if the person in the hospital got sick with COVID, their buddy would come in and take over for them. Um, and that was a significant change, I think, for everybody. That, of course, ended. That was a short-term solution. Um, but COVID, I think, changed our jobs entirely you know lots of things are done on zoom telemedicine people people kind of expect that um immediate access yeah what what are your thoughts uh, sarah about these changes that, that occurred um in all transparency i would say i've tried to stay away from having a lot of covid discussions but the one thing i really was very vocal about well two things but the one thing that is maybe relevant i always felt uncomfortable and it's inhumane to not allow family members to see their patient, their loved one. I understood that the rationale, but I disagreed with it because I felt, you know what, you, you know, we had APPs, uh, APP, uh, uh, PPEs, I'm sorry. We had, you know, people were able to wear masks and all of these things. And to say goodbye to a family member on FaceTime, it uh, it just really honestly broke my heart. And I completely disagreed by not allowing family members. You were on the front lines. You were right there. And you probably have seen that more than once. Tell me what you went through and, and how you felt about it. And whether you really agreed with the policy or not, don't worry. Nobody's going to do anything about your opinion. 
Um, it, it was really hard, especially early on. And I think when we were still didn't have all the information that we now have, I mean, I think hindsight's twenty twenty. but we, especially working on a transplant floor where our patients have zero immune system that are highly susceptible to, and we don't allow children on the floor, um, during cold and flu season and at baseline, this is pre COVID. Um, and so now you've got this respiratory, you know, virus that, Honestly, we had a couple transplant patients that ended up getting COVID peri, like in the midst of their transplant um, from family members. And, you know, I can, you can imagine the outcome. Um, so that was very hard to watch. We luckily, you know, didn't have to, I, I did not personally have anybody that I had to have say goodbye via Zoom. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I was I was okay when, you can limit the visitors if the patient is fine. I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I think where I, I had a, a very uh, where I felt uncomfortable is in the end of life situations. I mean, of course, like you said, if a patient undergoing transplant, immune system, and so on, we limit the visitors anyway, even without the pandemic. Correct. But I think when you are actively dying and you know that you have, I mean, that that's where I struggled with this. I know. Katie, what are your thoughts about this? And I know this is probably an emotional topic, but I do think it's relevant. I agree with Sarah in the beginning when we didn't have any information and it was frightening, right? Um, everybody was scared and just trying to do what was best. And it's hard to do when you're in the middle of a situation. So looking back on it now, I can I can see how maybe that wasn't the right decision. But at the time, we really thought we were taking care of the greater good because we did have that policy, you know, no visitors. And even if you're not dying, you know, the transplant process or induction for leukemia is not easy. You're in the hospital for three weeks or, or more. You can get very, very sick. Um, and it's mentally taxing at baseline, but add on a pandemic and not being able to have your support system at bedside. I can't imagine doing that. And I think that changed our, to go back to your earlier question about changing our role. We were there at the bedside for 12 hours and there were a lot of times where we turned into the family member, you know, sitting at the bedside, holding hands and being there and doing therapeutic listening for our patients. So not that we wouldn't do that before, but it turned into, we were all they had, us and the nurses. Sarah, during the pandemic and during all of these emotional times, who, who, I mean, who were you able to turn to for support? I mean, I obviously, hopefully your, your family, but outside of that, I mean, you probably were spending more time at work than home. So, I mean, was there a support system for you? Yeah. And I, I think that's, we are uniquely lucky. Um, we have, our physician team um, checks on us daily. Even This was pre-pandemic, but even more so during the pandemic. Um, I think they very much appreciated everything that we were doing in our roles and taking care of the patients um, and frequently checked in on us. Um, we have an APP leadership team that also was very supportive and is supportive. Um, so I think we have a lot of safeguards and just networks of people built into our roles that yeah, you know, it seems like they care a lot about us. It feels that way anyways. 
Yeah. Gotta... There's always room for improvement. Remember, don't ever tell them that. I mean, just, there's <laughs> always room to care more and to improve. So, uh, Katie, let's put on your futuristic hat. Like when you think of the field, uh, the field of APPs and what you are doing and in oncology, where do you see that heading? If we're having this conversation in five years from now and talking about APPs in oncology, do you see more, more of the same or do you see things evolving differently? I definitely see things evolving differently. Um, I would love to see APPs get more involved in research, being their own PIs on studies. Um, and then, you know, at our hospital, current practice is that APPs don't sign um, chemo on the inpatient service. But I think there's room to, you know, educate and have the APPs more involved in the chemotherapy process as well. Um, like so you said, what do you, what do you mean by the, what do you mean by the chemotherapy process? Like what, what's Right now, the, the ship is kind of set for us. The outpatient doc sets the plan. The chemotherapy is written and we enact. But, I, you know, to be more involved in that decision um, and make dose adjustments or involved in that process. Sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. No, no, it's fine. That's, that's why it's unfiltered. Everything is going to get in. <laughs> um, Sarah, where do you see the field evolving or moving towards the, the field of APPs in oncology? Yeah, I think um, even uh, hopefully it continues to grow and in a collaborative um, forward movement with our physician colleagues. Um, you know, I think the APPs, we as APPs are slowly, you know, uh, trying to get a seat at the table, if you will, in the sense of being involved in um, various committees and education initiatives and um Things like that. Katie, have Katie and I have recently um, been asked to participate in physician interviews for bringing new faculty on, which has been great. Um, and for us to be able to get how they might work with APPs and give our perspective on things. Um, and we were invited to be on a blood conservation committee that's hospital wide. So I think things are moving in, in that direction. And um, we've got a great team that wants to be involved and cares a lot. So tell me your toughest question to an interview candidate who is coming for a new job. Let's hear it. I'm going to try. Let's say, let's say it's me and you, you want to throw me your toughest one. I don't know if it's hard, but one of the ones that we ask pretty much everybody, and it's a very common, um, I think, interview question, but I think it's very telling about a person's personality is tell us about a time that you've made a mistake, a medical error, a mistake. Well, you know, we're doctors, we're gods. My answer would be, I mean, how, what do you mean? How dare you say that? I mean, I'm, I never make mistakes. Do I, that's the right, that's the right answer. It's a big old X, zero out of five. <laughs> no, it's actually a good question. It, it's a, it's a very good question. And I, I, I can see the importance of it. And um, I think, um, it's important to be humble and acknowledge that we're we're human. So it's uh, I think it's actually also a creative question. Uh, I have not seen actually or heard a lot of folks asking that question. I think it um, comes uniquely from ask an APP asking a physician, tell us about a time you made a mistake too. You know, yeah. being able to answer that, I think shows a lot of character. Do you see uh, some folks struggle in that answer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 
I mean, you know, some of it is culture, though, uh, because you always get afraid of saying, right? I mean, some of it is never the fact that people don't realize they make errors. It's really the implications of what that error looks like. Well, what else should listeners know about advanced practice providers? I'd love to see more involvement in social media, for example, for advanced practice providers on med Twitter. I don't I see few of that and I follow them on Twitter and I just uh, uh, I'm starting to follow you both as well. But what else should listeners know about what you do, who you are, the field, the involvement in oncology care, the evolution of the field and all of that stuff? I think, you know, there are so many of us and speaking from our team of however many there are 20, um, ask and it shall be done. We've got a lot of young, eager folks who are smart and willing and want to get involved and want to do the work. And there's a lot of work to be done. And put us to it. We're ready to go. And it's getting more complicated. Frankly, oncology care is getting more complicated. My goodness, I mean, CAR-T cellular therapy, uh, I presume you both were very involved in designing the logistics and the process and the treatment plan, weren't you? Yes, we, I mean, we care for all of the um, cellular therapy patients. So the bites, CAR-Ts on the inpatient service. Um, And so coming up with sort of the SOPs and uh, management of um, the cytokine release and ICANs and things like that. So you, you had to do that and then send it to to them for approval or something. There's a whole process for um, yeah. Yeah, for, for guidelines. But yes, yeah, so for instance, I just worked on one about um, doing a bloodless transplant and sort of in a non for non-religious reasons. Oh. Um, we just updated that. Look, this has been really amazing. I learned a lot from you and I appreciate you tuning in for Healthcare Unfiltered and being guests on Healthcare Unfiltered. Um, and um, I hope listeners understood how valuable your contributions are to the field of oncology and healthcare. And more importantly, your really passion and dedication to patient care. I don't think we could do anything that we are doing currently without everybody involved. Uh, you know, while obviously physicians dictate and recommend treatment plan and the direction of care, but let's just face it, we spend the least time with patients uh, in the inpatient setting. In the inpatient setting is everybody else involved in, and really that's really what matters. So any last words before I let you go? No, just thank you for shining the spotlight on APPs at the culmination of APP week. It's pretty special. Thank you. Oh, it is APP week. Yes. <laughs> well, we, for transparency, we are taping this on APP week, but it's not going to air on APP week. That's the issue. Okay. <laughs> because we do actually, we have a pipeline of uh, episodes, but I'm going to try to get this ASAP and I'll let you know for sure. And we'll amplify it on social media. Sarah Wyman and Katie Simon, thank you so much for visiting with Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and appreciate you being on this podcast. I appreciate everything that you provide in terms of feedback. And don't forget to let me know if you want to have one of the famous Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirts. They are excellent. And my guests today both have a t-shirt each. Rate, subscribe, and and write a brief review. Watch all of the podcast episodes on YouTube and visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. 
Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Winston Churchill. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Until next time.